Welcome to Season 6 of the podcast. Over the past five years, you and I have traveled to toy shows, to collectors' meetups, and to events like Star Wars Celebration. We sat down with our fellow collectors to discuss the hobby, the community, and what Star Wars means to us. In the previous episode, we closed out the year with a look back at the first half of 2023. February gave us the first Star Wars Morphe auction, featuring 450 carded vintage Kenner figures. March kicked off the toy show season with Pennsylvania Zolocon and the Columbus and Xenia shows in Ohio. April highlighted moments live from Star Wars Celebration London, and we celebrated the 20th anniversary of the Washington, D.C. Collecting Club. May delivered another milestone with the 40th anniversary of the legendary film Return of the Jedi. And June brought a return of the Toy-Con NJ show to Parsippany and ended with a prop store auction boasting some of the most exciting Star Wars props and one-of-a-kind collectibles. But that was only half of 2023's story. Before we jump into a new year, I wanted to revisit the final six months of 2023 with you. After all, we received a new HasLab project. We celebrated another milestone anniversary of a beloved Star Wars property, and we welcomed another new Star Wars series to the world of live-action storytelling. We returned to Xenia, Cincinnati, and ToyCon NJ for their fall and winter toy shows. In speaking with collectors, we learned what it was like to host a meetup for the first time, what it was like to part with an entire collection after 30 years, and how a December meetup became a collector's holiday tradition. And collectors shared the moments and pickups that defined 2023 for them. This is part two of a look back at 2023 from a Star Wars collector's perspective. This is a tour of the past six months through the moments and episodes that made collecting and being a Star Wars fan so memorable. This is a new year and a new hope. This is our friend Victoria Anderson to kick off Season 6 in style. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. of Star Wars, 2023 will always be remembered as the 40th anniversary of the 1983 film Return of the Jedi. Over the course of two podcast episodes at the end of May and the beginning of June, our friends and fellow collectors shared their memories attached to the film and the memorabilia from that era. The stories were funny and touching, heartfelt and profound, 
They brought back the shared excitement that the epic films from the 1980s delivered to a generation of fans. In the final week of June, during a long bike ride, I was listening back to the 40th anniversary episodes. And as I was pulsing forward through the heat of the summer, I realized something was missing. Each episode was a compilation of stories by a myriad of collectors. But in my haste to produce them, I forgot to include a Return of the Jedi memory of my own. As I mentioned all the way back in Episode 1, I grew up as a Jedi kid. Return of the Jedi shaped a part of my childhood and arrived at the perfect time in my young life. In that moment, on that particular bike ride, I regretted not being a part of the episodes and including a story as a tribute to what Jedi meant to me. As I rode past a small lake, I began to reflect on my memories through the decades connected to Return of the Jedi. And I decided I would kick off the month of July with one final episode for the 40th celebration, a collection of my personal stories. The second half of the year began with episode 138, titled The Wonder of Return of the Jedi, Blacked Out Ewoks, Luke Prototypes, Monster Munchies, and more. I divided the episode into vignettes, covering the anticipation of the film and the figures, receiving my last Jedi figure at retail in the 1980s, and purchasing my first Kenner figures as a newly christened collector in the 1990s. The episode highlighted my connection to Star Wars through memories of my family. Newer stories focused on my hunt for Jedi figures and prototypes. And I shared a special piece I had acquired in May, the week of the film's anniversary. It was an original drawing from a Return of the Jedi activity book that was one of my favorite childhood items. Here is part of a vignette from the episode, which recounted the first time seeing Return of the Jedi figures and the mystery in the advertising. They hovered like two spectral shadows against a yellow backdrop. Opaque blotches of negative space jutted out at angles and rounded at others, surrounded by soft, fuzzy outlines. The blotch on the left was taller and vaguely cone-shaped, with protruding shadow-like feet and a triangular form that suggested the existence of a left arm. The one to the right of it was shorter in stature but wider, it resembled the silhouette of a hand softly cupped, palm facing upward. The presence of the two blacked-out blobs was made all the more eerie and mysterious by the 63 plastic figures that filled the five rows around them. This was the back of the blister card showcasing the Kenner's 65 action figures available in 1983 and included the first character offering from the final film in the Star Wars trilogy. The rest of the figures were colorful and defined, and while some of the characters were unknown at that point, the photo displaying them gave us a clear idea of their upcoming appearances in Return of the Jedi. Those blacked-out spots on the card back were just as fascinating as those within the Return of the Jedi lineup. There was the idea that they could be anything. And even at that age, I knew there was a reason that the toy company wanted those two figures to remain hidden. Something special was behind that surprise. Return of the Jedi was not only the first Star Wars film I was aware of before it was released, but it was likely the first movie I anticipated seeing. It came at a point in which I was consciously aware that it did not yet exist. 
that I had experienced a time before Jedi. But it was also the first time I knew that the movie was on its way, and that new toys would appear at my local Toys R Us and Child World, which were heavenly havens I would visit frequently. I remember first seeing this lineup and being utterly captivated. I was three or four years old, And although the memory is as fuzzy around the edges as the silhouettes, I believe an image in a Kenner toy catalog first heralded the fact to me that there was a new Star Wars film coming soon. I can't remember if it was truly a catalog, but the feeling of learning about the new film, as well as the arrival of a new series of toys, was overwhelming in the best possible way. That feeling has stayed with me for decades, and it burns as freshly as it did in the first half of the 1980s. Today, the online realm has answers to almost any question, which can be retrieved in a matter of seconds. But 40 years ago, in the early 1980s, there was no widely available internet, no social media, and very little available coverage of Star Wars news. And for a child of the 80s, the emergence of a film like Return of the Jedi, or of the Kenner action figures could be sudden and without any advance notice. One minute, Star Wars is two films. And the next minute, there is a third and final chapter to the story. One day you visit your local toy store and the aisle is packed with Empire Strikes Back figures. The next week, the Return of the Jedi logo suddenly graces many of the products on store shelves. Something new was on its way and the blacked-out figures signaled something special was coming to a galaxy near you. Episode 139 was released in the week leading up to Hasbro's HasLab announcement at San Diego Comic-Con. At the time, the fact that Hasbro was preparing to produce the rebel ship The Ghost was the worst-kept secret in Star Wars. We had received unofficial confirmation from fans who had been surveyed by the Hasbro team, and Hasbro's posts on social media contained visual clues that The Ghost was finally on the horizon for the Vintage Collection line. Ahead of the presentation, I wanted to do an episode that focused on the history of the ship, its iconic crew, and why it had become so important to so many Star Wars fans. I realized that a large part of our community still had not watched the Rebels animated series. And with the Ghost taking center stage as Hasbro's next HasLab project, coupled with its upcoming appearance in the live-action Ahsoka series the following month, it was clear it would become even more important to the current Star Wars storytelling. But before we boarded the Ghost for where it would be heading, I felt we needed to see where the ship had been previously. And more importantly, which familiar characters from the Star Wars universe had been its passenger at one time or another. And I think many fans will be surprised to hear how crucial the Ghost was during the nascent years of the Rebellion. The following clip presents the Ghost passenger list featuring the characters from the era of the original trilogy which also includes Rogue One and the Andor series. Next to the Millennium Falcon, the Ghost may have had the most impressive passenger list in all of Star Wars. In the past decade, the Ghost has become a legendary and iconic vehicle. 
A large part of that is due to it playing host to so many important and notable characters. In many ways, it became a hub to connect the heroes of the Clone Wars and the prequel films to those we would meet in Rogue One and in the beloved original trilogy. The show kicked off its first season with some familiar faces. The Rebels crew recovered R2-D2 and C-3PO, reuniting them with Princess Leia's father, Bail Organa. And after Zeb lost Chopper to Lando Calrissian in a Sabacc game, the charming smuggler joined them on the Ghost for a smuggling run, promising to return the droid to the team if successful. In another episode, a teenage Princess Leia displayed her brilliance and savvy, outsmarting the Empire and stealing three cruisers with the help of the Rebels. In the gunner's cockpit of the Ghost, she consoled Ezra after he learned of his parents' death. Leia told Ezra she fights for those who cannot, and she saw that same heart and fight in him as well. As John Williams' legendary theme dedicated to the princess filled the air, Leia gifted Ezra with a newfound purpose, helping him on his journey to becoming a leader. And the ghost played a crucial role in extracting two cadets who wanted to defect from the Imperial Academy. Wedge Antilles and Derek Hobby Clivian were two young pilots saved by Sabine and the Ghost Crew, and joined the Rebel Alliance. Years later, in the Battle of Yavin, they flew alongside Luke Skywalker as part of the Red Squadron. Two important characters from Andor and Rogue One also traveled in the Ghost. The crew rescued Saw Gerrera after his entire team was wiped out on Geonosis. Together, they discovered proof that the Empire had committed genocide against the Genotians. In a later story arc, the Spectre Squad was tasked with rescuing and transporting the Rebellion's leader, Mon Mothma, to the planet of Dantooine. From the cockpit of the Ghost, Mon Mothma transmitted one of Star Wars' most historic messages. In it, she announced her resignation from the Galactic Senate and called upon all rebel resistance cells from across the galaxy to meet her on Dantooine and to join her in the fight against the Empire. At that moment, ships from many systems appeared from hyperspace, filling the vastness around the Ghost. They arrived to support the cause Mon headed, and the Rebel Alliance was born. August. After Hasbro premiered The Ghost at July's Comic-Con, the HasLab project reached its minimum backing goal in only four days. After the failure of the Black Series Rancor in 2021 and Reva's lightsaber in 2022, The Ghost would likely be Hasbro's last shot at keeping HasLab relevant to Star Wars fans. I had hoped that the development team would have learned lessons from each failed campaign, and that the ghost would highlight the corrections made, leading to a successful launch. The Comic-Con reveal put my mind at ease. There were many elements in the presentation and in the overall execution that let fans know Hasbro had heard them. After all, a HasLab project, this crowd-funded campaign, is built on a relationship between the company and its fan base. And if Hasbro neglects its fans, and if that relationship is broken, it's likely to doom a HasLab item from being produced. But Hasbro had listened. 
And in episode 140, I wanted to highlight what the company did differently this time to ensure the ghost's success. Some of the topics I covered were keeping the ghost at a reasonable cost, and communicating the stretch goals on the first day of the campaign to avoid disappointment. The episode also featured segments on the importance of working with Lucasfilm to get the details right, and including the Phantom, an auxiliary ship that attaches to the ghost. And the following clip from episode 140 stressed the importance of having a physical model ready for the beginning of the campaign. A tangible ghost. One of the best decisions the Hasbro team made was to have a physical model of the ghost at the Hasbro booth at Comic-Con. After the panel ended, the team carried it to a HasLab-branded table in the center of the booth to present it up close to fans. In the past, projects like the Razorcrest and the Rancor only offered digital renderings of the toy to the audience of Star Wars collectors. A digital render against a black background helps to give potential backers an idea of how the final product will look, but it cannot compare to seeing the scale of the piece on a table or in a designer's hands. And the prototype model of the ghost that premiered at Comic-Con was not only fully painted, but included hand-painted prototypes of the exclusive figures as well. In addition to getting extensive social media coverage from the physical model's reveal at the Hasbro booth, the ghost became a tangible toy from the first hour of the campaign. And I think that may have had an impact on fans, as the project was no longer an idea, but a reality. A few months after the campaign, I did an episode where I asked collectors to share their favorite Star Wars-related experiences from 2023. Here's the vintage collection aficionado, John Miko, to give us his take on seeing the ghost live and in person at San Diego Comic-Con. Hi, it's John Miko, and my favorite Star Wars experience of 23, without a doubt, is attending San Diego Comic-Con. It's always been a bucket list item of mine, and it was great to finally be able to attend and experience everything it has to offer The best part was, of course, attending the Hasbro panel where they unveiled the next HasLab, the Ghost and Crew. We also got to see it up close. We even got to touch it. Um, It was uh, surprising to see it was fully decoed and almost complete. And we also got to interview the, the Hasbro Star Wars brand team and just chat with them over the course of the weekend. So, uh, and I'll be remiss if I didn't say that it was just such a wonderful time spending, uh, spending it with close Star Wars friends. So shout out to Augustine and Ariel, which are our pros at the convention circuit and brought me along, uh, on what a fun adventure. August was the most productive month for me as I released six episodes. Three of them centered around Andy Cook's toy show, the Toys for the Ages Expo, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Episode 141 was titled The Toy Trip of a Lifetime, 3,000 Miles of Finds, Figures, and Friends from Chicago to Carlisle. During the Toys for the Ages weekend, I had dinner that Friday with a number of collectors, including Kevin Mann and Alex Coltart. 
Kevin and Alex are from Maine, and that week they travel 3,000 miles to various toy shows, museums, toy shops, and collectors' homes. Their trip ended that weekend in Carlisle, and it was an incredible experience to hear about it over dinner. It was the type of trip we collectors dream about, and it was made even more exciting through the passion Kevin and Alex bring to our hobby. On the last day of the toy show, I had some time to record a conversation with Kevin and Alex about their toy trip of a lifetime. They kindly spoke with me for a half hour before the show opened to the public that Sunday morning. And uh, you guys had a, a pretty interesting trip recently, right? I think it's because we're the only two people that we know that are crazy enough to drive across the country for toys. But yeah, it's been a great trip. And that's what you did in the past week? Yeah, so we went out, uh, first leg was all the way straight out to the Chicago area. We went to the uh, what some people call the Kane County Toy Show, Chicago Toy Show. Um, at the King County Fairgrounds. It's a massive show. They had like two gigantic buildings filled with toy vendors. Day prior to the show, they have uh, they give a uh, what they call floor rights, so we can go around while vendors are setting up and kind of see what they have. Um, when you line up for that in the morning, that we actually found probably some of the more amazing things that we found there were like just in people's cars in the parking lot. So, yeah. so you guys were going through the parking lots and. To, to put that show into scope, we got there and everyone was like, oh, you drove across the country to come here now? He's like, this is the small show. And basically everyone there said that we were wasting our time. And we started seeing like football fields of cars pulling up. And when I went wandering through, everyone's opening the back of their trunks to sell things out. And uh, I came up to a truck that just looking through the front windshield of the truck, I could see probably $30,000 worth of vintage toys sitting on the guy's front seat. And I knew that. This was not going to be a small show for us. We were going to have a great time, and we did. I cannot tell you how enjoyable it was to speak with them about their trip while they were still on it. After Kevin returned home, I asked him to record a segment where he shared his thoughts on the entirety of their trek once he had a little time to reflect on it. Here's a snippet of that recap. Um, we were also recommended by Earth to Kentucky to go see um, Big Fun Toys. We went there. So that was a cool spot. A um, lot of toys there, packed and packed with vintage items. Um, we we hit a couple more antique malls. There's a Fairfield, um, Ohio antique mall. Um, and then we went to see Chad Plus collection in just south, around Pittsburgh. Very cool, very comprehensive collection. A lot of Star Wars items in his collection. A lot of rare pieces. Um, he has a Black Star playset. He has a, an unproduced Sky Commander's vehicle. Um, and then I included uh, an unproduced um, Centurion's figure. Um, that was an amazing collection. Uh, fairly mind-blowing um, collection. And then we also went to Dini Collectibles outside Pittsburgh, or in Pittsburgh, uh, very cool shop. They had a ET toy hamper. You don't see one of those every day. Um, we we headed then from basically out toward the Kyle Isle show um, and uh, went to Attorney of Dreams. That's in Maryland. And then um, visited our friend Kelly at uh, Retro and Rad. Real cool shop. I've been there several times. She always got something fun. Um, and then we did the Carla, the Toys for the Asia show. So that was two days, Saturday and Sunday, end of uh, July. 
amazing show. You see a lot of amazing stuff. Um, I couldn't help myself. I added more to my collection. I picked a couple of Battlestar Galactica items up and a Flash Gordon item. The trip was amazing. It really superseded any other trip that I've done for toy hunting. Um, in its length, it was 11 days of traveling. Um, I spent about three whole days on the road um, for the number of hours that I was on the road. It was about 3,300 miles uh, that we covered. We went to um, at least six vintage toy shops dedicated to vintage toys. And then we went to a handful of uh, antique malls, thrift shops. Um, and there were more that we could have gone to, <laughs> but we basically ran out of time. So um, had a ball, uh, really uh, fun meeting a lot of people at the shows and at the, the uh, store owners, staff from the store. Um, just a lot of fun all around um, doing the Army building, hunting, and just being on the road, you know, going out there and wondering what we'd find next. I recapped my experience at the Toys for the Ages Expo in episode 142, the first in a two-part series from the weekend. It was at this show that I had my best find of the year and one of the best finds of the past few years. And it occurred within the first 15 minutes of the show's opening that Sunday. I just had to share this. So it's 8.55 this morning, and I had one of the best finds I've ever had at a toy show. Um, there was a, a box of loose modern Star Wars figures, a uh, pretty substantial box, and it was filled to the top. And so I just started to dig through them as I do because I love modern. And um, there were also vintage figures mixed in, and it was almost a complete collection of droids and Ewoks figures. Um, I think it was, every, like, the, the wicket was missing, and the size and take from were missing. Um, but I got everything else. Uh, A-Wing pilot, um, C-3PO, R2-D2 with a pop-up saber, um, George Dusat, and... Thal Jobin, Kez Ivan, Kia Mole, uh, Duloc Shaman, Duloc Scout. I'll be honest, I don't even know what I have yet. I have to look through, but um, the, the R2 with the pop-up saber and, and the C-3PO, this all came from one collection. Uh, the owner uh, had it since childhood, had all the accessories with the stuff as well and matched them. Um, it's just amazing. So I'm completely shocked. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know even what I got yet uh, because I just I just bought everything. But um, yeah, uh, King Gorniche. Uh, I'm looking in the bag now. So Lady Gorniche. Uh, this was <laughs> one of the better finds I can I can remember, and uh, and the prices were terrific. So. The show is off to a good start. I had my first sale and I had my first purchase, which heavily outweighed my first sale. But uh, here we go. There's a more detailed description of the find in the episode. But I had to capture that moment as I raced back to the booth that my friend Pete LaRose and I set up that weekend. The Toys for the Ages Expo was my favorite toy trip of the year. 
Hanging out with Pete and so many of the friends I met at this show years earlier made it a memorable and rewarding experience. It was the kind of show that immediately makes the highlight reel for the year the moment I returned home. And as a collector, I couldn't have asked for more. I can't wait to return to Carlisle for this year's show. I took a brief break from the Toys for the Ages Expo series in the middle of the month to celebrate another Star Wars milestone anniversary in 2023. Fifteen years earlier, on August 15, 2008, Lucasfilm premiered the Clone Wars movie. Compiled from a handful of episodes from Season 1, the film continued the story that took place during the prequel era. It also introduced beloved characters like Captain Rex and Ahsoka Tano. And in the years since its release, The Clone Wars has become a fan-favorite series, as well as the backbone for many of the current Star Wars stories on screen and in print. To celebrate this monumental Star Wars series, I asked our collector friends to share their feelings about the franchise and what The Clone Wars meant to them. Here's David Tree on the initial excitement of seeing the trailer for the first time. Hello, I'm David Tree from the UK. Star Wars fan, uh, Star Wars addict, I guess. Crikey. Anyways, going right back, my first Clone Wars like fond memory is actually the very first Celebration Europe in 2007. Now, it was an incredibly stressful show for me. I was actually running an exhibit for the show, uh, the Palatoy Archive, which was a huge monumental undertaking. It was absolutely bonkers. But word got around that the very first Clone Wars teaser trailer was playing at the show. Uh, But I was almost anchored to uh, the exhibit throughout the entire show, uh, having to uh, really uh, uh, man it and everything like that. And then like an opportunity came up and uh, my partner, Chloe, and I uh, were so like, no, you got to go see it. you got to go check because everybody had seen seen it and uh this was like one of the last sort of like uh uh, previews of the day and and steve sansweet was there to uh introduce it um so i managed to get up there and it was in a small room uh with like a projector screen and uh i remember it just playing and i was almost kind of like sort of sort of semi-dumbstruck because I was always a huge fan of Star Wars animation um, in uh, with like uh, uh, droids and Ewoks. Huge, huge fan of those productions, and also within uh, video games as well. And it always perplexed me that like you know animation hadn't sort of like been taken on any further with you know, with respect to like Star Wars properties, particularly. Um, we were like Star Wars was concerned. You had like the two D Clone Wars. Uh, cartoon that came out and it was never really fully explored beyond that and it was like this is an incredible opportunity so then seeing this trailer I was just literally dumbstruck and I just remember Steve Sansby saying you know because everybody was kind of almost like like wow and I just remember him saying well let's just play that again shall we because I think everybody was like having a real sort of like difficult time like processing it because it was almost like your dreams had come true that something other than a movie was like you know uh, being put together there um so that was 
you know, for, for me, in terms of like episodes, that was like absolutely just like stand out. And if, if you kind of almost book in and that with the actual final season itself and how against all odds, when the Disney takeover happened, there was like the cancellation of Clone Wars for it to then have uh, the opportunity to like wrap itself up in such a way that just was far more advanced than its original um, uh, writing and, and story making there. That, that final season was just incredible. And, and, and for me, like the, the Kevin Kiner uh, soundtrack as well, bringing in elements of like Vangelis and Brian Eno into, into that, like very, very different compared to the soundtrack at the early series, which was almost like very uh, at a different age uh, demographic to where it ended up. So it was almost like that whole era of Clone Wars, which is a generation of Star Wars in itself, has had, had grown up with its audience and, and finished in such a way that it it was still telling the same story to the very first people that saw it, but it had grown up with them uh, throughout those years as well. Absolutely incredible. Like many of the experiences our friends share, Eric Janicki's memory is connected to his sons and sharing the Clone Wars with them as children. You know, he looked like he wasn't in a hurry to go anywhere, so I took the chance and introduced myself to Dave Filoni. And I was like, hey, I have two you know, young sons at home that are really looking forward to the Clone Wars animated series you're doing. You know, would you mind signing something for them? And if you had the time, would you mind doing a little sketch? And he was more than gracious with his time. And he was like, sure, I'd love to. So he sat there with a pen and sketched out a clone trooper. And I had a Sharpie and he did these highlights with the Sharpie. Um, So it's a really cool looking sketch. And he signed it to Paul and Lucas, autographed it. And then he wrote, enjoy the show. And of course, I, I took a couple pictures of him doing it. And then him holding up the the final result. This way, it proved that to show them that you know the creator of you know this new Clone Wars series you know just drew this sketch personally for them. So when I got home, I printed out the picture and the sketch, and I had the sketch, and I put it in the frame, and the kids just loved it. It was it's literally one of my most prized collectibles in my collection or in their collection right now, um, and we just hung it on the wall uh, in between their two bedrooms, and it's been there ever since. If you're a Clone Wars fan, our friends' stories will help you to see the series in a new light. And if you haven't given the show a try yet, episode 143 may convince you to do so. In episode 144, I covered the Carlisle series for the final part in the Toys for the Ages Expo weekend. The first part covered Friday and Saturday of the event. Sunday was a slower day at the show, affording me the time to record a series of collector conversations with some of the dealers and attendees. I spoke with modern collectors Eric Benner and Matthew Cross about the vintage collection, their friendship, and some of their favorite items from their respective collections. And I chatted with Andy Loney and Eric Janicki, two longtime collectors whose friendship has spanned decades. Listening to the episode brings me right back to the floor of the Carlisle Expo Center and among friends again. It captures the ease of the conversations and the jovial and warm nature that a good toy show delivers. And I couldn't have been in better company for all three days 
it truly felt like a family reunion. Before I left the show that weekend, I was able to catch up with the show's promoter, Andy Cook. In addition to putting on an unforgettable show in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, Andy was able to bring home a special piece for his personal collection. So we're, we're in the last hour, Andy, and um, you and I were talking early on, I think on Friday, and I had asked you if, if uh, what was the coolest thing that you saw. And do you remember what you said? Yes, I said there's a Toxic Avenger uh, movie standee. That... It's like four or five feet, right? Yeah, four or five feet. Definitely Toxie with his mop and like grotesque, but it's like... From the 80s? From the 80s. Mm-hmm. Super sick, and I've never seen one of them. Yeah, and it was gorgeous. We looked at it. It was it was up for the whole weekend, and, and you're right. It was a really cool piece. It was a, um, It's a stand that would have been in front of the theater. Yes. Um, and then, um, so... I saw you now, and I said, hey, we have to talk. So, Andy, have you had any amazing finds or any pickups lately? Um, yeah, so I just have in my arms the uh, Toxic Adventure Standy. <laughs> I could, there's a deal I couldn't pass down. Uh, he has uh, been haggling me all day, the seller. Um, I know him personally, so um, he's like, just take this with you. And I said, he said, make me an offer, and... So I shot him an offer and he accepted. So the seller is a good buddy of ours, yeah. and we spoke to him earlier. He's a yeah. good friend, so really good so, guy. So I'm happy, he's happy. Um, but I, but he wanted to go to a good person, and I have, I have over 50 standees at home right now in store displays. So this will be proudly uh, displayed in my area. So, so be really honest with me. So you set this two-day show up specifically just to get the Toxic Avengers. That is correct. I knew it was coming. It was in Chicago. I saw another friend of ours, Sean Hill, that had it. They bought it from Sean Hill. <laughs> Sean, then they delivered it to me here in Pennsylvania, so I didn't have to go to Chicago. And now I'm walking away with it. That's awesome. August's final episode was one that had been on my mind for a while. As a collecting community, we had grown so used to the rhythms of the pandemic era of collecting for so long that when the slowdown finally occurred, the hobby faced a strange and uncertain future. General interest diminished, as those who had gotten swept up in the frenzied momentum stepped away from collecting and sought other avenues for enjoyment. Disney's slate of Star Wars streaming releases stumbled, losing viewers and with no definitive film on the horizon. And amid this sea change, many of our fellow collectors reassessed their own collecting habits and sought larger answers, like what collecting meant to them and the role it played in each of their lives. This type of self-reflection is always healthy and can often lead to new decisions and a reinvigorated purpose. And so it appeared that our hobby of Star Wars collecting was about to enter a new phase. Before looking at where we might be headed as a community, I wanted to explore the past, to see the path treaded by Star Wars and collecting over the past four decades. I discovered that there were a series of eras in the Star Wars timeline, each spurred by a unique seismic event that shook the hobby and the franchise. The first was the introduction of Star Wars in 1977. The second was Star Wars' return to the spotlight in the 1990s, kicked off by the Heir to the Empire novels, 
new video games and stories, and the Power of the Force 2 figures hitting retail stores across the globe. The prequels ushered in another era, one of the largest and most anticipated times in Star Wars' rich history. But the disappointment of the prequel trilogy closed out the excitement and anticipation of the early aughts with muted fanfare. Here is a clip from episode 145, recounting the end of one era and the path to the next. The advent of the prequels continued the marketing and merchandising blitz that began in the 1990s. Episode 1 and its sequels offered the rare second chance to recapture the magic that many associate with that first viewing of the original films. And the nostalgic pull was so great, so immense, that it reignited the Star Wars fandom in a frenzied and spectacular way. In doing so, it also set unrealistic expectations that a second trilogy would likely never reach. With the prequels, Lucas aimed to do something different. He did not want to rehash the stories he told previously. The new technology and the new direction for the franchise was different, but was less engaging to an audience once mesmerized by the original trilogy. And as the first decade of the new millennium came to a close, Star Wars had stepped out of the spotlight and had moved away from the mainstream. And in order for it to regain its position on the global stage, for it to resonate with a worldwide audience and to take hold of the cultural zeitgeist, it would need to embrace a new story for a new generation. It would need to bring back the characters that made Star Wars so popular from the beginning. And it would need to return to theaters. The next era was indeed a return to theaters, under Disney's ownership and with an all-new trilogy. For many of us, it was what brought us back to Star Wars and collecting, and it is responsible for many of the friendships and adventures we have today. The most recent era was a result of the pandemic, sparking a collecting frenzy in Star Wars memorabilia and in almost every other collectible imaginable. I'd recommend going back and revisiting this episode, or listening to it for the first time. In addition to being one of my personal favorites of the year, it looks at the history of Star Wars and collecting in a way that hadn't been done previously, and I think it gives collectors a better understanding of where we've been as a community. And I hope to continue this story in 2024, as we chart a new course across territory that will be at once familiar and new. September. August had been a busy month. I produced six episodes during that span, three on the Toys for the Ages Expo, one on the HasLab Ghost, one celebrating the Clone Wars 15th anniversary, and the one covering the seismic events in Star Wars collecting history. The last one took the longest to produce, and I spent countless hours trying to frame the timeline I discussed in a clear and logical manner. And then... The momentum came to a sudden halt. The episodes I had planned for the month were no longer the ones I wanted to cover. September likely would have had eight episodes. 
and four of those episodes would have been conversations with Ahsoka fans about the live-action series, as each new chapter premiered. The fifth would have been an episode about some of the rarest Ahsoka collectibles in existence. And the sixth, seventh, and eighth would have been part of a series that continued where the seismic events episode ended. So my plan was to produce two episodes each week, with the Ahsoka discussions occurring on Thursday. But the Ahsoka series was not what I expected. It didn't connect with me in the way that I had hoped, and I was baffled and frustrated by a number of the decisions Dave Filoni made in writing it. What we saw each week was simply a chapter of a larger story, and at times, those chapters felt half-finished or hastily scribbled. So I canceled the idea of having Ahsoka discussions, because I wanted to wait until the first season concluded before sharing my thoughts on it. And when it came to doing further episodes about where the hobby may be heading, I have to admit that the previous month's pace probably caused burnout. I was faced with the self-inflicted pressure to create an episode each week, and yet the combination of struggling to find the right topics to cover and needing a mental break resulted in a sort of paralysis in which nothing happened. The first three weeks of September were brutal. I felt as if my brain put down its pencil, grabbed its bags, and left my body, saying, I'm going on vacation. Not sure when I'll be back. I encounter a creative block like this each year. It just happens, and I've grown accustomed to it. A mentor of mine taught me to push through it. But this time, it felt different. I felt like I was still pedaling on a bike, but the bike remained stationary. Something felt broken. Speaking of bikes, the first positive breakthrough came during a September bike ride. Lucasfilm had released the fifth episode of Ahsoka in select theaters to generate hype for what would become an epic moment in Clone Wars history. And as I was riding, I realized that the screening had come and gone over the course of the week with very little coverage. I wanted to know what the experience was like for those who attended, since there had been very few moments in which Star Wars returned to the big screen after 2019's Rise of Skywalker finale. The idea was the first one in a month that genuinely interested me, and I thought you'd be interested in hearing about the experience firsthand from someone in the audience that evening. I contacted Chris Letty, a dear friend who had attended the Boston screening of Episode 5. We arranged a time to discuss his experience, what it was like to watch a pivotal moment in Ahsoka's history with a theater filled with Star Wars fans. But I was still struggling with the creative block and that block lifted during the second breakthrough of the month. It happened one Sunday morning at church, and episode 5 of Ahsoka played a part in it as well. To better explain what happened, here is part of the intro from episode 146, titled, Pass the Popcorn Snips, Experiencing the Ahsoka Series in Theaters with Star Wars Fans. So to recap, over the past few weeks, I was dealing with some real-life stuff, while not feeling 100%. At the same time, I was pondering the future of Star Wars and of collecting, and was anxiously traversing the weekly Ahsoka episode drops, along with the praise and fallout of each one. Which brings me back to church this past Sunday. Okay, so the pastor was discussing the 23rd Psalm. It read, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Toward the end of the sermon, a scene from Ahsoka, episode 5, popped into my head. I saw Ahsoka standing on top of her starship, hand outstretched, facing the largest space whale she's ever seen. After speaking to it, you know what, Filoni didn't give it a name. Let's call it Larry. After speaking to Larry, Ahsoka returns to the cockpit of her ship. Her companion, the droid Huang, asks her, Your son, they know where Sabine was taken. I have no idea. We'll just see where it goes. And the episode ends with an Ahsoka no longer burdened by her past. No longer weighed down by trying to make the right decisions. She lets go of what has held her back, and she puts her faith in the Force and lets it lead her wherever it plans to do so. One of the themes of the 23rd Psalm is the reminder that the Lord is our caring shepherd and He guides us and protects us through life. He leads us beside still waters. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us in paths of righteousness, comforting us along our journey. Now, you might not believe what I believe, and that's okay. I'm just sharing what gave me a strong sense of spiritual peace and comfort on that Sunday morning, and what led me to envision that sequence from Ahsoka in that moment. Sitting in the darkened section of the sanctuary, I realized that I had been too busy holding too much around me too tightly, and not relying on a larger force to guide me through the challenges I faced. And this goes for the Ahsoka series, for the future of Star Wars, for the collecting community, and for the fandom too. And to a degree, I was missing the joy of being a Star Wars fan, because I didn't know where any of it was going. And I realized it's time to sit in my starship with Huang the droid in the mouth of a space whale named Larry, and to let it do the navigating for a bit. And hey, it looks like my brain cells have returned from their conference. I'm curious to hear what they've learned, and where we're headed. Now that the hyperdrive is online again, I wanted to highlight a moment that happened in the world of Star Wars last week. Lucasfilm brought the franchise back to a handful of theaters for one night only, for a group viewing of the fifth episode of Ahsoka. Our friend and fellow Ahsoka-holic Chris Letty attended one of these viewings. And I was so curious to hear about his experience and what it was like to see Ahsoka and Anakin again on the silver screen. Here's a segment from episode 146, where Chris talks about watching the monumental episode in the theater. How did you go from sitting there to the show yeah, starting? I mean, it was, just, it was just like the you know home screen on your computer up on the huge <laughs> big screen. And then um, right at eight o'clock, the... Um, the screen changed and it was just like a still image of it kind of looked like the elements from the poster that we got, but, um, stretched out in like widescreen. So we were like, all right, here we go. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that probably was up there for like a minute or so and everybody quieted down and then the lights went off and then we got previously on 
and it was just like just like an episode. What was the first point in which people started to lose their minds or react um, audibly? It was, I mean, it was so quiet after we got the, you know, the previously on and then the, the Lucas or, you know, the star Wars intro with the, you know, all the helmets and all that stuff. Then it goes to, um, you know, the widescreen visual of, you know, the landscape of Satos. Um, you could hear a pin drop. I mean, it was utter silence from the crowd. Um, and I mean, honestly, it wasn't until, you know, you have the little intro with, um, Hera and Jason and Chopper, um, and then they find Hu Yang, you know, looking out over the water, holding Sabine's helmet. Um, everybody was just quiet, taking it all in. And then once that scene ends and then the Ahsoka, um, title pops up and then it says, you know, episode five shadow warrior. And then still everybody was quiet. As soon as it jumped to world between worlds and Ahsoka and Anakin are facing off massive applause. I mean, like everyone in that theater was going crazy. The conversation with Chris was everything I had hoped it would be. Through his recap, I felt the stress of racing to the theater after a day at work, joining other fans in line, and scampering to pick up the exclusive Ahsoka poster before the viewing began. And his descriptions of what it was like to view an Ahsoka episode with hundreds of other fans, as well as the moments that enraptured an entire audience, captured what made Star Wars so resonant for so many of us over the decades. October. October 3rd was the 15th anniversary of the premiere of the Clone Wars television series, and the 9th anniversary of the Rebels animated show, which also made it the perfect day for the season 1 finale of the Ahsoka live-action series. In the hours leading up to the finale, an idea hit me for a last-minute podcast episode. I posted a message on social media and in the various collecting groups, asking anyone who wanted to participate to record their immediate reaction at the finale's conclusion. I was curious to hear what others thought of the finale, and wanted to hear their responses in the moment, while their emotions were still fresh. And episode 147 was born in the ensuing hours. Our friends mentioned the elements that worked for them, and ones that missed the mark. They spoke in exuberant tones, and the episode brought back the feeling of seeing a Star Wars film in the theater and analyzing it afterwards with other Star Wars fans. Star Wars content has a track record of eliciting reactions upon a first viewing that may reverse course over time. I remember it happening with the prequels in 1999, as a schoolmate declared it to be better than Empire Strikes Back, 
only to admit he felt less excited about it with the second watch, once the initial joy of seeing a new Star Wars film quickly faded. I am proud to say that this episode featured passionate fans like Narayan Nike, David Tree, and four of my Ahsokaholic companions, Chris Letty, FJD Robertus, Will Russ, and Fonz Napolitano. Here is Glenn Williams, another diehard Star Wars fan and someone who has deep emotional ties to the Rebel series and its beloved crew, on his experience watching the finale. Just a quick warning, spoilers for the series ahead. Hey Dave, it's Glenn in in Georgia. I'm just going to go for this because that episode was was pretty amazing. Um... The beginning of it, when you saw Ezra building the lightsaber and you saw him pull the the Kanan emitter out, you saw him and Hu Yang talking about Kanan and wow. And then at the end, to see Ezra reunited with Sabine, with, with Hera, and you, you, as soon as you pulled, you saw the old school Ezra trick when he pulled the comm link from the Stormtrooper and you knew what was going to happen. Uh, you know, he dresses as a stormtrooper, and you see him, you see the ship pull into the home run, home one, and you know it's Ezra. And the sea chopper, I immediately started bawling when I saw it. I knew what was happening, and Ezra looking at Hera and just going, I'm home. I'm not happy that Sabine and Ahsoka are stranded far, far away, but. How else were they going to do it? Hopefully their bond will get stronger and it'll be an amazing next five years of storytelling from Dave Filoni. Um, Balin found this looking for the mother, man. That's probably the only theory that people got right for this whole ep- for this whole season was that Balin was looking for the mother and there he is with the father and the son and you saw the daughter uh, with her head chopped off, uh, you know, missing from the picture and then you see the owl at the end which represents the daughter because Ahsoka is part of the daughter from Clone Wars and oh my god, the next five years of Star Wars storytelling is going to be freaking amazing. I am so looking forward to this. Um, I give the Ahsoka series a 10 out of 10. I didn't get the Rebels reunion. I got a small Rebels reunion. We got the Rebel, I didn't get the Rebels reunion I wanted, but I got bits and pieces of a Rebels reunion. I'd have loved to have seen the whole gang together. I would have loved to have seen a force course of Kanan. But what you going to do, man? Maybe we'll get it later. Uh, but... Yeah, what what a great what a great season of Ahsoka. What a great Star Wars tour that's storytelling for Clone Wars and uh Rebels fans. I did not see Dave Filoni pulling the heartstrings of the Clone Wars people like I thought like he did. Uh, I knew it was gonna happen for us Rebels fans. And uh I'm just gonna end it by I, I cried so hard my dog had to come check on me at the end of that episode. So Chef's kiss to Dave Filoni. Dave for president. Let's bring it. And uh, thanks for the podcast.
The day after the Ahsoka finale, I sat down for a roundtable discussion with the Ahsoka-holics crew. FJD Robertus, Will Russ, Fonz Napolitano, Chris Letty, Clifton Boggs, and I did our first Ahsoka-themed roundtable in 2020. And over the years, we've reconvened on the podcast to talk about all things related to Ahsoka and the collectibles. And I couldn't imagine not having a discussion with them about the finale of an Ahsoka-centric TV show. The conversation was an honest one, and the Ahsoka-holics were very forthright in expressing the successes and missteps within the series. And as we chatted, I was struck by each of my friends' takes on the finale, and the insight they shared. The conversation was an in-depth exploration of expectations versus execution, and whether those two paths aligned in resonant or surprising ways. And we covered everything from zombie troopers to the Mortis arc from the Clone Wars to the possibility of seeing a character called Abeloth from the Star Wars Legends stories. Here are some quick moments from episode 148's Ahsokaholics Roundtable. I think it, it just you know, opened up Ahsoka's eyes and, and we obviously see her demeanor and, and everything, the way she's thinking, the way she's interacting, the way she's talking. It's all much more um, calculated and straightforward. And when she's talking with Sabine in this moment, she's showing her that, you know, she's here for her. And she's not going to be holding back because of unknowns and fears and things in the past. She's, she's going to, you know, be that master that Sabine needs. It kind of felt like the last season of the bad batch where it just jumped around so much. And it seems like that's what they're doing with all of their series. Now it's just jumping because they're trying to fit so many people in and I'm just guessing they're getting ready for the movie, the Mandalorian. That's just, that's just my guess. They're setting it all up. I think in some ways we almost have to look at this first season of Ahsoka as almost season zero of a larger story just to get everybody kind of up to, up to date. Yeah. And then, but I think you also make a really good point too, that in, especially in, in losing Balin in the, in the finale for the most part, you know, where he didn't appear until the very last scene. Um, I, I think we lost something really key to the story. I think we were, we were on this path with Balin and Shin and then, you know, they were, they were the ones that really started the season for us and then they just disappeared. You know, whoever Balin, you know, let's just say it, it's Abeloth. Um, <laughs> uh, he's got to, he's got to raise her and then he's got to try to bring her to the galaxy. And obviously Ahsoka and Sabine and are going to, are going to fight against her and she'll probably still make it to the galaxy. And I, I, I think there's a lot that still has to happen before, you know, there's the main movie. So I think there's plenty of room for multiple seasons of stuff because there's a lot that still has to go on. I will say, as somebody who read Heir to the Empire in 91, and then a year later listened to Mark Thompson read it, those were two very different thrones to me. Hearing the voice, seeing the action, kind of downplayed some of the cunning that you felt from Thrawn while you were reading Thrawn. 
jump to when he was in Rebels. He seemed more involved. He wasn't afraid to go out on the battlefield and lead. It wasn't just, I'm going to watch this from a screen and let everyone else do it. However, I will say that phone call to Ahsoka at the end was classic Thrawn. You think you won, but I actually won, and you don't have a shot. See ya. Boom. Gone. Well, that's why I wonder if if there will be a season two, and if that, like, I almost see it as we just got set up with two different stories, and Thrawn is on his way back to the galaxy, and maybe that will start the sort of, like, pseudo heir to the Empire story. And Ahsoka, Sabine, Balin, Shin are all going to be in this new galaxy now, exploring, like, you know, the Mortis arc and, um, and not really being part of the other story. Cause there was something Ahsoka said at the end, she said to Sabine, it's time to move on. And I know she meant like, it's, you know, the little snail people and they're all moving on. But I, I saw a deeper meaning to that. Like it's time to move on from that. And now we're moving on to this. Maybe we'll see more of Balin. Although he'll have to be recast, I guess, obviously, but, um, which is such a shame because Ray is amazing. was amazing. But um, yeah, I, that's how I kind of maybe see it, going in two very different directions. After speaking with Chris about his Ahsoka theatrical experience and following it with the Ahsoka Holics Roundtable, I decided to continue with a series of various collector conversations. The first weekend in October was the Great Ohio Toy Show in Xenia, Ohio. A group of my collector friends had planned to rent a house in the area and attend the show together. Many of them met and bonded during the Saturday night video group chats held during the pandemic. And these chats still continue every week to this very day. However, as the Xenia weekend neared, almost everyone who intended to travel out to Ohio suddenly couldn't. But two members, David Kevin White and Joel Slater, decided they would still meet up, rent a house for the weekend, and tour the show together. After they returned home from Xenia, they shared their weekend experience with me in episode 149. Here's David with two observations from the show. Well, I would say it was packed. That's the first observation. So I can't necessarily tell you the motives of the, the buyers who were there and, and what they bought it and see all of that or, nor ask them. But I can tell you compared to the Zini show one year ago, it was as packed or probably a little bit more if memory serves right. It was, it was crowded. It was difficult to move around. It was shoulder to shoulder, especially in the, the morning part before noon. So that was, that was really surprising and, and welcome. And compared to some of the other toy shows like the Kane County toy show, I, I would say Xenia had the crowds just like Kane County does. I saw uh, parents with children. So I can definitely tell you, you know, seeing children with their parents there. Uh, so they came to, you know, find some things. So those are the two observations. It was crowded, but there were also families there. And here's Joel to give us a better idea of the size of the show. I think it's hard to tell because it's so spread out. First of all, um, I mean, you got seven buildings, and I think it's as far as like 
land-wise, I think it's actually bigger than Kane. It's just more space. Uh, but I think Kane's still a bigger show because they pack stuff in more, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, there were a lot of people. Um, I parked over, like, I guess where the vendors could get in, and so there wasn't as many cars as, like, the general parking. So, I mean, that's usually a good sign to tell is how many cars there are. Um, but since it's a seven-building show, yeah, it's kind of kind of hard to tell. But, I, yeah, I think there, if, if there was 10,000 people there in the spring – probably there was 10,000 people there again because it was about the same type of crowd or more. And I would say fall 2022 to fall 2023 uh, was at least the same. If not, I'm, I'm going to go with more in fall 2023. Uh, it was crowded. It was tough to move around. There were times when you're, you were moving like one mile an hour, like you couldn't get to where you needed to go. While the conversation centered around the fall Zini experience, the heart of the episode was the friendship that had developed from a shared love of Star Wars and collecting. And that interest formed a bond between David and Joel and led to a memorable collector's trip to Xenia, Ohio. I believe their story and the adventures they had that weekend are what we all long for in becoming a part of the collecting community. That somehow the connections we make turn into lasting and profound friendships and take us to places to which we might never travel otherwise. Before I release the episode, I prayed that my friend's story would reach people who needed to hear it. And I prayed the podcast would reach more people, and would help to connect collectors in new ways. And that week, the number of daily listens rose to surprising levels, ushering in a new era for the podcast. And it's been that way ever since. I reached a personal milestone with episode 150, and I wanted to make it a special one. Our friend and fellow Empire State Club member F.J.D. Robertus held his first meetup at his New Jersey home in the middle of October. F.J. themed it to Halloween, and at one point in the evening... We toured his neighborhood, where the houses were decorated with pumpkins, life-size ghouls and goblins, and everything fitting the spooky and fun season. For FJ, hosting a meetup was a really big deal, and a really big step. I first met him in February of 2020, at the home of collector Ross Barr, which was the last meetup before the pandemic swept through the country. And with years of attending collector's events now under his belt, F.J. was ready to invite members from the Empire State Club into his home and to see his impressive Star Wars collection. After spending a wonderful and memorable day at F.J.'s house, I wanted to hear about the experience of hosting a meetup from his perspective. I wanted to know what the challenges were in putting it together and what the day had been like for him. In this clip from episode 150, FJ shares what he took away from his first meetup and why it gave him the confidence to host his own event. Um, I just, but I think it, it was just true friendships that I was seeing. It was, um, and then I saw this at every meetup since and at mine, that when you go to someone's meetup, yeah, of course you want to see their collection and you want to see how they display things and you want to see, you know, even if they have things that you have, how are they displaying it differently and you get inspired by others' collections. But it's really, to me, at every meetup I've ever been to, including my own now, the collection is just the backdrop. 
it's sort of just there and it's just facilitating this time to gather with like good friends. Like, you know, it's not just, you know, it's not just like coworkers. It's, it's really good friends and getting time to bring people together who live far apart that can come and hang out. And so that to me, that's what I first saw at, at Ross's. And then I think the next meetup I went to, I think, the, yeah, it was Fonscon after and same thing there. And both had beautiful collections that were inspiring and it was great to hear about them and their stories behind some pieces, which are awesome to hear that too. But it's really just the friendships and, and being together. I think that's what, you know, really stands out for me. And as we wrapped our conversation, I asked FJ if he had any advice for someone considering hosting a meetup for the first time. Just to do it. <laughs> like just that there is no, like we said before, there's in this community of ours, there's, and all of our friends, there's no judgment. Um, people are just happy to see what you have and how you display things. And, um, and they're just happy for you to provide a space for them to come to, to get together. Um, and, and have an excuse to, to be together. So just, there, just don't, don't delay, just do it. If you feel like you want to have people over, um, don't hesitate. A few days after I published episode 150, a collector reached out to me. He told me he had listened to FJ's story, and it propelled him to want to do something similar for the collecting community. He had reached out to some of the members in his area, and thanks to FJ, he is planning on hosting an event at his home for the first time in 2024. The lesson from episode 150 is to take a chance on an idea, to get the support and backing of your friends, and to see the blessings that come from all of it. And our community is all the better for it. That day at FJ's house was one of the highlights for me and for many other collectors. We still laugh about moments from the evening. And there isn't a week that goes by where someone doesn't bring up FJ's freaky frolic and says, I'm so glad we had that time together at FJ's house this year. In August, Tad Moore announced online that after 30 years of collecting Star Wars memorabilia, he was parting with his entire collection which would be sold at Hake's auction over the next year or so. Tad had been a staple of our community for years. His focus was Darth Vader, and in addition to the Kenner line of toys, he also collected modern prototypes, Batman comics, and a variety of other lines. Over the years, Tad had accumulated more than 500 carded vintage Star Wars figures. Somehow, he found himself as the owner of three gold prototype Darth Vader action figure cases as well, and had acquired an impressive Jabba the Hutt pre-production run. When I heard Tad's announcement, I knew I had to speak with him about his decision. For many of us, collecting is woven into the threads of our DNA. It has been a part of each of our lives, and the vast majority of us cannot fathom a time in which it's not. And yet, Tad not only reached the final level of his collecting journey, he's experiencing life on the other side. How did this happen? I was curious to learn how he was able to separate that aspect from his life after three decades, and why he decided to part with everything. Over the course of episode 151, Tad filled us in on the details of his life, why he started collecting, 
what the toys meant to him, and how he reached this life-changing decision. As with most of the other episodes, singling out a clip doesn't do the full conversation justice. But here's a peek at the thought process that set the decision into motion. So in my house, I have a, we call it the Star Wars room. Well, I call it the Darthanon. Um, but it's like this room that was just sort of this extra room that had built-in shelves and stuff. And when we first bought the house years and years ago, it sort of became my de facto Star Wars room. Um, and you would open the door and it would just, at this point, it would just be like stacks of stuff. Um you know, not being displayed, not being enjoyed, not being, um, really, yeah, just enjoyed. Like it would just, I'd be like, oh, that was a really cool thing. I'm going to deal with this at some point. Like someday I'm going to, you know, redo this room. I'm going to redo some shelving. I'm going to, um, you know, do all the things that I, I wanted to curate, but it just, it never came to fruition. And then it, you get to the point where it's just like the, um, I think the word you used was burden. And yes. that's, that was a great word uh, because it was almost like a stressor. And I kind of felt not kind of, it was almost a feeling of guilt. Like, man, I have this crazy cool, like this thing that I got from a really good friend and it's in a box under three other boxes. Um, you know, like the funny part too, is if a couple of years ago we had um, like our house was needed new windows and new siding put on it. And so in the, the Darthanon, there was a window. And so for the contract to do, I had to like pull everything off of the shelves that was in that, um, you know, adjacent to that window so that he could put in the window, et cetera. And so it all just kind of got piled in the room. And like, that was two years ago. And like, it's, it's still the same. Like when you walked in, I was like, I haven't touched this stuff in two, like it hasn't mattered enough to me to like, or I haven't had the time and prioritized it enough to put it back and, you know, even just the way it was and enjoy it and all that kind of good stuff. Right. And life carries on elsewhere, right? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, you get to a point where it's like, um, man, do I want to go to my kid's basketball game or do I want to spend these couple of hours cataloging and reorganizing this stuff? You know, and you have to sort of make those decisions. Tad was so thoughtful in his approach to his life, his family and his future. And our conversation really impacted my view of collecting and made me look at my own collecting habits. And it really connected me to Tad in a way I wasn't expecting. As Tad mentioned in episode 151, he is still part of our community. His focus has shifted from acquiring collectibles to acquiring more experiences. And I am determined to get him out to the East Coast for a collector's event, hopefully this year. November. Episode 152 was an unexpected addition to this year's slate. As Tad and I wrapped up our conversation for episode 151, I realized that we had only covered half of what I had hoped to discuss with him. The conversation was such a warm and enlightening one, and I asked Tad if he would be willing to do a second part around his decision. My aim for episode 152 was to highlight the types of pieces he collected during the previous three decades as well as the first items that would be in the November Hakes auction. Here's Tad discussing arguably the most iconic item in his collection. So I never thought I would have a gold Vader case. 
um, like when you start researching that and you see that like on the collector's archive and read about it, um, never thought that that would honestly like pre-production Vader for a long time. I was like, I'm never going to have anything from that. Cause it's just so coveted and, um, so expensive. But, um, luckily over the years I was able to get three different variations from, um, some amazing people that gave me the opportunity to, to add it. Um, so that was that was pretty cool. Uh, I mean, there there are certainly much larger collections and everything, but it was neat to me that that was the one I think too. When people come, like because it's a big shiny gold thing, that that tends to stand out more, and you can explain a little bit about like how they were trying to make C three PO and all that. Um, it was cool to have like a shelf with three different cases on there. Our conversation also delved deeper into Tad's decision. And Tad shared the lessons he learned as a collector and shared advice with other collectors who may use this year as a point of reflection concerning their involvement in the hobby. If the Fall Xenia episode was really about the power of collector friendships and FJ's episode was about taking chances and taking an active role within the community, this two-part series with Tad was a deeper look into the soul of a collector. It was about asking the difficult questions about life and our interests, and where and how they intersect. A number of collectors reached out to me after hearing Tad's story. They share the philosophical challenges they faced in addressing their own collecting habits. And they told me how hearing Tad's take helped them to make decisions in their lives that would reduce the burden that collecting often became. Episode 153 began another two-part episode. This time, my guest was longtime collector Ron Salvatore. Ron is a member of the Empire State Club and co-created the annual. He also consistently writes some of the best articles on vintage Star Wars collectibles, which he posts on the Star Wars Collector's Archive blog. This year, Ron attended the Cincinnati Toy Show Weekend in Ohio. What was once a must-attend event had faded a bit during the pandemic era, but a number of established collectors were finally returning for this year's event. I was curious to hear about the experience from Ron's perspective and what this year's weekend was like for him and for our friends. But Cincinnati has played a monumental role in Ron's life over the past few decades, as he was part of a group that traveled to Ohio, unearthing some of the rarest and most historic Kenner prototypes for the Star Wars line. Here's Ron taking us back to the early days of the Cincinnati Toy Show weekend's history. I don't remember the year. It had to be close to 10 years ago. I do remember that there was it was a get-together going on that was planned. And we It was Todd, me, Ed, and Chris kept it quiet because we weren't sure if we were going to show up and pop into there, but we organized our trip to go out there to meet Kenner people around the Kenner show, around the, the Cincinnati show. And I do remember we walked into the, to the bar that those guys were meeting at and everyone was shocked to see us there. So that I remember that. I remember the look on Brock's face because he didn't know we were going to be there. Um, 
so that that's a pretty funny memory. Um, and that was around the time that all those fake hard copies that the lawsuit was going on. Because I remember talking to 2010, 2011. Yeah, Adam Bulakowski was doing something about a legal thing, and I don't remember if it was the same trip or a later one. I remember meeting Isaac Lev's now wife, like at the time was his girlfriend for the first time out there. And it was kind of cool because Isaac and Jenny, her name is Jenny, they were out there this time too. And we were talking about that. Like the first time I'd met her was at the Cincinnati show. And that must have been one of the first times we went out there. And it had to be, it had to be close to 10 years ago now. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And that wow. would make sense. Um, I went out for my first time in 2017. So by, by that point, um, you know, the show and the and the Cincinnati Toy Show weekend, which encompasses meetups and room sales and and all these other you know collector based events, um, was already established. Yeah, I'm going to say it was around 2014. That's just my guess. I could probably figure it out by going through old photos that have dates on them and like, oh, here I took this photo. But uh, it was got to be around 2014 or so. So it's been a while, and it's we've probably been to that show out there just mostly to go to the show and hang out five times or so over that period. I haven't gone every single year. Uh, I didn't go last year, uh, but I've been out there a bunch of other times, pretty much always with Chris and Ed and, and, and Todd Chamberlain, I think didn't come to some, but then when he moved to Indiana, now he goes pretty much every year because he's pretty close. Okay. And Chris and Ed and Todd, uh, were three collectors with whom you would travel out to Cincinnati before the, the Toy Show Weekend even existed, and that that's where you know you guys were meeting with the different former Kenner employees. Yeah, that was definitely in the old days. That's what it was about. Like nobody else was going out there. Very few people. I mean, other than people, there was other people who were involved with our group. You know, Gus and Chris Fawcett and would come out, but I don't remember anybody hardly going to Cincinnati, especially for a show. Uh, and that was going back to the nineties, you know? So nowadays we met with some people when we were out there this time, but it's kind of like, in you know, it's like almost, there's not much to dig up. It's, it's very, it's a lot different now. And so it's mostly just to hang out with collectors that I went out there. Episode 154 was the second episode I did with Ron and focused on some of the legendary items in his collection. I asked Ron to share a story behind a piece from each of the main action figure releases within the Kenner Star Wars line. Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and 1985's Power of the Force. Ron is a great storyteller, and many of the items he owns are true gems from Kenner's rich history. Here is Ron's story about a wood pattern, basically the carving responsible for producing one of the most recognizable Star Wars vehicles ever created. For Star Wars, I put, um, I have the, the wood pattern for the, the back, the very, the end cap of the, the Kenner X-Wing fighter, the three, three quarter inch X-Wing fighter. Um, and I don't know, your listeners may be familiar, but a, a wood pattern is like the original master artwork for a vehicle component. So someone had to, uh, you know, a master craftsman had to make out of wood um, the piece that was used to create the mold 
that was later used to mass produce that X-Wing, the cap. And it's like an iconic, it's, it's a part of a vehicle and you wouldn't think, oh, it's just a part, but anybody who collects Star Wars sees that part and they know exactly what it is, right? Because <laughs> it's like, everyone has looked at the back of that X-Wing. Uh, and it's, it's done at two, a two up size. So it's, you know, I don't know, geez, it's like five inches tall, maybe. This is twice the size of the, the actual piece and it's all made of wood and it's just, it's just a very cool item. I mean, there's a, there's a few other patterns out there. You know, there was a find a few years back where, you know, Gus has the um, uh, sand crawler, pieces of the sand crawler that he posts now and again. That's just an amazing um, thing to have. And Todd Chamberlain's got a part of the B-Wing. Uh, but to have an early piece of an iconic vehicle like that and for a part of the vehicle that it's like is immediately recognizable – is really satisfying. And, uh, you know, that piece came to me, you know, we were talking about in our other conversation recently about going to Cincinnati back in the early days. And, you know, I was out there with some friends and we were buying, we were meeting some people who worked at, there was a former Kenner people. A lot of them had been hired by this other toy company. I think it was called uh, it doesn't matter what it was called, but it was it had various names because it, it was had various owners. But there, there was a one point where they were working for Warner Brothers. They were like a division of Warner Brothers, and they were making toys. And this is back in the day when most things were still sculpted and, and handmade rather than done in the computer. And there was, I want to say, two Kenner sculptors working there at the time, former Kenner sculptors, and maybe another Kenner guy. But they had told their friends that these guys who were interested in Kenner were, were coming by and they would show up like on Saturday or Friday morning or whatever it was when we were out there. And as they were working, like these guys would show up and they sometimes they would bring stuff that like, Oh, I found this in my closet, you know? Um, but just, you know, sidebar, like some, you walk in and like, you'd see these guys who are like former Kenner sculptors and one of the guys who we later bought a lot of stuff from, right? Like, and he'd be sitting there, gruff guy, Hey, y'all, you worked on these. Do you remember what figures you sculpted? Oh, yeah, I might, might have done this, might have done that. And this is in the middle of his work day as he's working on like other toys <laughs> at yeah. his desk. And it's like, do you still have any of that stuff? And he just kind of laughs and he looks up behind him on his desk and he's got like a table behind him and he's like, see those things up there? And he's got like a row of Dixie cups. And he's like, like yeah. Like, okay. And he, we're just all looking at each other like, what's he going to pull out? <laughs> like, and it's like, pulls down a Dixie cup. It's got like a rubber band with a plastic bag on top, you know, tugs off the rubber band, the plastic bag comes off. It's just like this battered, dusty, you know, Dixie cup and just like scatters the pieces on the desk in front of him. And it's like the original acetate sculpting for the death squad commander. Oh my gosh. <laughs> just sitting there like, Oh my gosh. And you're just looking up and there's like a row of like 10 other Dixie cups. And he's like, <laughs> Whoa, what else is in those other Dixie cups? Um, he's like, he didn't want to sell them. Not then at anywhere at any rate, but it's just like laughing. He's just like, you guys really like this stuff, huh? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> like, can we get to know you better? Wow. Um, but, uh, like just crazy stuff like that. You know, you talk to some of these guys, you're just like, I could not believe. Um, but anyway, like some of these other, these guys got to know him fairly well after visiting him a few times and a few other old Kenner people would come by this place and uh, sometimes they would bring things. And there was one morning, this guy showed up. I, I should have looked back at notes because now I'm trying to remember who it was. 
but he had the pattern for that that X-wing pattern. He also had a proto mold, like an aluminum mold, that they that was made using that pattern. Um, and yeah, I just we, I talked to him. Somehow I ended up with it. I made him an offer, you know, and he sold it to me. And he had just saved it all those years, uh, and I've had it ever since. That must have been in the late '90s, probably. Uh, but it's, it's just very you know, detailed it, and it beautiful. It really is. Yeah. I mean, all the all the little details, and then someone had had to hand make it, and it's just stuff like that to have an artifact like that um, from that early in the line for an iconic toy is pretty satisfying, and also to have the mold that was made uh, from it. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to have you know sculpts and stuff from the early period over the years, and you know, it was a similar feeling owning stuff like that, where it's like it it feels like a piece of history almost more so than a, just a mere collectible uh so that that was the piece that's the star wars piece that i picked out i hope to do more of these episodes with other collectors this year these types of conversations are what we love as we learn about star wars and collecting and connect more deeply with friends like ron Last year, I spent a weekend in the Lancaster region for my first Sithmas event. Sithmas is a meetup hosted by Pennsylvania collector Mike DiStefano. Over the years, it has morphed into one of the biggest meetups of the year, drawing Star Wars collectors from the Empire State Club, the Pennsylvania Club, the Northeast Club, the Ontario Club, the Ohio Group, the Indiana Club, and the Washington, D.C. Club. In addition to growing in attendance, Sithmas has also morphed into a three-day event. Friday kicks off the weekend with a collector's meal at a local restaurant. Saturday is Sithmas at Mike's, complete with a white bantha gift exchange for more than 70 guests, a group dinner, and hours spent in the company of our fellow collectors. And Sunday begins another group outing, this time a breakfast at Gus's Diner. For the final episode of November, and in the days leading up to this year's Sithmas event, I wanted to talk to Mike about what it was like to host a meetup of this magnitude. But in many ways, it had surpassed being a meetup. For many collectors, it had simply become a holiday tradition. In this clip from episode 155, titled Hosting Sithmas, Mike explains what hosting Sithmas means to him. Hosting is meaningful to me. And I think it's fair to say that it really takes a village. While our home is the home that is the place people will congregate, there is a group of people who help me pull this off. And it couldn't be done without them. But it's meaningful to me because it's a reason to connect with my friends in a world that often moves so fast And a year has gone by so quickly and so many things are happening in our lives that sometimes keep us from being able to be connected, even online. You know, there there are the Sunday or the Saturday night meetups and chats and I just can't make it. My uh, my time with my family takes over on Saturday. So I have every intention of joining one of them. And then 52 weeks go by and here we are and it's Sithmas again. And what to me it's it's being able to see our friends and and shake hands and hug each other and and just 
really kick off the holiday season by being around each other. December. Going into the final month of 2023, I felt it was a good time to figure out collecting goals for 2024. And I wanted to make sure you were prepared for the fines, decisions, and possibilities a new year brings. In March, I had released an episode offering eight key tips for collectors. For December's episode 156, I challenged myself to come up with a few more fresh takes that I hadn't covered previously. 2023 showed us that the collector's market has transformed into something considerably different from the past few years. And as collectors, we can succeed by adapting our strategy to the current landscape. So I came up with 11 quick but essential tips for the year ahead. They highlighted aspects like knowing when to be greedy and when to be fearful with your acquisitions, creating an attack list and sharing it with others, and the benefits of curating quality over quantity. Over the decade, I've learned so much from other collectors through conversations and in the wisdom they've shared freely. And my hope with episode 156 was that it would spark ideas for you in your approach to how you collect and the goals you set for yourself this year. Here is one of my favorite tips from this episode. Think ahead. Anticipate. The best way to be successful as a collector is to see the larger picture. Often, we're concerned with what is in front of us at the moment, or the current state of the hobby. But it helps to sharpen your view and to look farther down the road. Anticipating possible trends or how collectors may react to upcoming announcements or events could work in your favor. When the cast of the Clone Wars and the Rebels series began to tour the convention circuit, Posters for the animated shows became more in demand as fans purchased them to have them signed by each cast. This makes logical sense. This year, after months of rumors that Hasbro was going to release a ship called The Ghost from the Rebels animated series as its next HasLab project, the company finally made the announcement official at July's San Diego Comic-Con. Almost immediately, the Phantom Attack Shuttle, a companion ship from the series that Hasbro produced almost 10 years ago, skyrocketed in price to $120. For collectors who ordered the HasLab Ghost, adding the 2014 Phantom would come at a premium. But the smart collectors who purchased one while the HasLab project was still a rumor likely paid far less. And for those who collect the vintage Kenner figures, it may sound early, but 2027 is the 50th anniversary of the 1977 Star Wars film. The prices of 12-back figures may have dropped substantially over the past year, but the nostalgia attached to the film may be the catalyst to spike the values of the first 12 figures when Lucasfilm celebrates that milestone anniversary. These are just a few examples of what thinking ahead can do for you as a collector. 
and there are hundreds and hundreds of moments where thinking ahead can help you to make smart purchases or can take you to one of the areas currently out of the spotlight before everybody else arrives. And in a hobby as competitive as Star Wars collectibles, the ability to anticipate gives you a clear advantage in getting the pieces you desire before they disappear or become too expensive. The second weekend in December concluded another toy show season. And the final show for me was a return to ToyCon NJ in Parsippany, New Jersey. Earlier in the year, I did an episode covering five trends from the June ToyCon and from other shows around that time frame. The five trends I noticed were that fewer attendees were opting for the early bird admission. Toy shows were selling fewer vintage items overall and were stocked with recently released toys. Vintage Star Wars figures and memorabilia were harder to find at these shows. Many of the modern Star Wars Hasbro figures were often relegated to clearance bins, and that a cultural shift was bringing in a new audience to these shows. My question behind episode 157, titled The Final Toy Show Trip of the Year, was whether these trends continued in the second half of 2023. And in most cases, they did. This final show was a fascinating one, and the elements that define the post-pandemic toy show were evident at ToyCon NJ. My favorite part of the experience was hanging out at my friend Ryan Humblehorter's booth for most of the day. Ryan collects loose vintage Kenner Star Wars figures, and he usually sets up a ToyCon. I've known Ryan for more than a decade now and spending a day with him at a show like this gives us time to catch up on life and to have those deep and really long collector discussions we all crave. As one of the few sellers of vintage Star Wars action figures there, Ryan also had a steady stream of shoppers and collectors stop by his booth. Ryan and I had the opportunity to speak with each one, hearing their unique collector stories and what they loved about Star Wars and the Kenner line. Ryan and I have attended ToyCon since its premiere almost a decade ago, and spending those Saturday hours at his booth felt like we were back in the collecting days of old, before The Force Awakens ignited the fandom. Uh, David and I are kind of recognizing that we're getting to be like elders on the scene here, and so we're trying to impart some of our wisdom onto other collectors, uh, informing them about variants, and yeah. um, that's been a lot of fun today. So, and there were there were collectors of all different ages that were coming up that really did not understand a lot about, say, the variants or didn't know why you had certain items in certain cases. Surprisingly, I mean, you think that everybody knows about the red bar R5 and everybody knows about the the painted legs on, but, you know, there's still a lot of room to learn, um, and there's collectors at different stages, so um, it's nice to impart that knowledge onto them and explain to them and show to them, oh, here's the little rectangle that's either filled red or filled white on an R5 to make it worth, you know, 10 times the value. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, yeah, just just a blast, you know. For, for a more experienced collector, you might look at and know exactly what's going on with all these figures, but then somebody might say, well, what's, what's with this Boba Fett uh, painted helmet? Oh, well, that turns out that's a rare variant, you know, so it's... It's fun for me to see it. It's it's fun to have the excitement around it and to share the information. It, it's good to feel useful and be a part of the community here, you know. 
Sithmas had given me the opportunity to catch up with friends and collectors, some of whom I had never met in person, and others I hadn't seen in a while. And in addition to talking about life in general, we discussed things like what the year had been like for us. We talked about some relevant moments and some of the pickups that made 2023 so memorable. And when I returned home, I decided to do a series focusing on those two topics, the pickups and Star Wars-related moments of 2023. I asked collectors from the various Star Wars clubs and groups to tell their stories behind the experiences and purchases, and why they were meaningful to them. And I received more submissions for this year-end wrap-up than I had for any previous episode. Episode 158 focused on the pickups of 2023. The stories our friends shared ranged from vintage Kenner carded figures to modern proof cards and hard copies, to original art and one-of-a-kind items that resulted from a years-long search. Our West Coast friend Alan Bartlett won two historical documents from the production of the original trilogy, and they came from a beloved golden droid. Hi, David. This is Alon Bartlett calling to share about my favorite addition to my collection this year. And it definitely has to be the two items that I won from the recent prop store auction. Both items are from the private collection of Anthony Daniels and contain his handwriting. The first one is a piece of paper that contains location information for the filming of A New Hope with dates in March and April of 1976. It's all in his handwriting, and it indicates different days and times and where he needed to be and how long he needed in order to be put into his costume. So it's a behind-the-scenes production piece for the making of the first film, which makes it the coolest Star Wars item in my collection. The second thing that I won is a piece of paper that was used after filming Return of the Jedi. Since we never see 3PO's lips move, it was easy for them to record his lines after the fact and dub them in. So what I won is an ADR, or Automated Dialogue Replacement Sheet. The first half of the lines on it were typed onto the form, but the second half were handwritten by Anthony Daniels. All of the lines on that sheet are ones that he speaks to the Ewoks back at their village. To me, those are some of 3PO's most shining moments, pun intended, so I'm very glad to have something that celebrates his role in the film. And here is a submission that didn't make it in time for the episode, but is a perfect continuation and a bridge between the two episodes. Here's Paul Chu with his notable non-Star Wars pickup of 2023, the original art for a music album cover, and some unforgettable Star Wars collector-related experiences. Hi, Dave. Paul Chu here. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. 2023 has been such a terrific year for, you know, Star Wars collection, yes, but in general, the whole shebang, I was able to get a proof to the album cover art for Around the World in a Day. The original painting was uh, from Doug Henders. You may remember him. He painted that iconic face for When Doves Cry video and he was commissioned by Prince to do Around the World in a Day. So he's given this set of instructions, which was included in this lot, a copy of it, uh, 15 items that he had wanted in the painting. And what he'd also requested a couple of specific images, uh, which Henders took 
Polaroid stuff, and the Polaroids were also part of this lot as well. And all in all, it's just such a terrific item. Super happy about it. Um, in terms of Star Wars, went to a lot of, uh, finally a lot of shows and traveling this year, particularly Kane County and Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Toy Show, CTS. And I got to tell you, just both events, just more so not the toys that I saw, but the people that I saw. It was just so nice seeing everyone together again, as well as private collections. Just, just terrific. More so, as always, it's been the people that have been always made the hobby the best part of what we do. Here is wishing everyone a wonderful holiday season for 2023 and an amazing 2024 coming up. Take care, everyone. Episode 159, released on Christmas Eve, was a time capsule of the events and moments from the past year. In it, our friends told tales of trips to Celebration London and to Tunisia to see where Star Wars was filmed. They talked about being immersed in the world of Star Wars at Disney's Galaxy's Edge. They covered meetups like the 20th anniversary of the DC Club, the Georgia Summer Social, the Northeast Club's 15th anniversary screening of the Clone Wars movie, and the wonder of Sithmas. They spoke of the lasting memories connecting with their fellow collectors, attending Comic-Con and toy shows, traveling to Rancho Obi-Wan, seeing Thrawn on screen for the first time, and changing their approach to collecting. Portland collector Dan Uthman gave us his top three Star Wars and collector-related experiences from 2023, and I was thrilled and honored to be included in that list. I want to sort of, I can't really narrow it down too far, so I want to um, talk about three favorite experiences for the for the year. Um, one was uh, going around to film sites with Robert and Shannon Ortiz in London before Celebration began. Um, it was just an awesome experience to walk where the um, actors and crew were in London for parts of um, season one of Andor. Um, anyway, I if, if you do a little research, you can find probably a dozen places in England um, that were used in that show and continue to be used in season two. And um, I would highly recommend uh, doing that sort of uh, activity or tourist um action so anyway that was let's put that at number three and we, you know we can attach um celebration to it um if you listen to the post celebration episode of this podcast you'll hear also um some other experiences that um were pretty awesome for me there um number two is um a sort of shortly planned or unplanned um two meal visit with David Quinn himself at the Marlboro Diner in Central Jersey. And um, I was back in New Jersey for work uh, in August and um, didn't have a lot of time. It was kind of a whirlwind trip, but I was able to make time for um, one dinner and then sort of a surprise um, bonus brunch um, on a uh, Wednesday or Thursday. I can't remember what it was. Um, but anyway, it was just like, I was, I was all over like 
North Jersey and New York, but I still was able to figure out two times to zip down the highway to the Marlboro Diner and meet up with David for some very, very long and fulfilling meals. And um, also to see some um, pretty awesome pieces that David uh, has in his collection that don't always see the light of day. So um, I know they will one day, and I know people will have their jaws dropping when they do. So that was number two. And you're kind of like, how can we top, like, two private meals with David Quinn with no clock, you know? Well, this is maybe how I could top it is um, earlier in the year, around May 4th in Portland, there was one sort of local theater that was showing a weekend of the original trilogy. And um, as a family, we went on Friday night because they were showing episode four. And we thought, what a great way for our kids to experience um, the movie. Like, my my daughter had seen episode four before, but my son, who's seven, had never seen any Star Wars movie. Um, in fact, like, I think he'd only seen, like, YouTube clips of, like, Lego adventures and things. Um, but um, we went to uh, the movies and we only made it to the sale of the droids before my son was like, I'm ready to go. Like he was out. He was so over it. He was not into star Wars at all. Um, so that was like, you know, mid spring. And then by late summer, it completely flipped and it partly, and I know it might be hard for listeners of this podcast to believe this, but I can really credit a lot of it to young Jedi adventures, which he just completely clicked with. And then a lot of listeners to this podcast can identify this. The other thing that really um, got him hooked was um, Rebels and Clone Wars. Like, he's really into, like, battle droids and um, clone troopers. He's just, it's just completely flipped. Um, So probably my number one experience for this year will go down as the, the year that my son finally, like, embraced and got into Star Wars after, like, a decent amount of time with a total aversion to it. So anyway, um, I hope everyone has a great end of the year and a great 2024. And thanks for having me. I published the final episode of the year hours before the ball dropped on New Year's Eve. It was part one of this series, a look back at 2023 from a Star Wars collector's perspective. And like this episode, it covered some of the memorable moments from half of the year. And now, with this first episode of 2024, we've reached the end of our look back at 2023. I've thoroughly enjoyed revisiting the moments that shaped this year for Star Wars fans and collectors, and I loved listening to the collector conversations, the reports from toy shows and conventions, and the stories our friends shared with all of us. And while looking back has been rewarding, January signals a time to face forward and to embrace an entirely new year ahead of us. To be honest, the upcoming year carries great uncertainty for Star Wars fans. 2024 will be without a Star Wars movie in theaters, or a familiar series like The Mandalorian on Disney+. 
There will be no massive Star Wars Celebration convention, as the next one is slated for Japan in 2025. And the collector's market has continued its quiet slump away from the spotlight. But these elements challenge us in a great and positive way. They cause us to revisit what already exists, or to try new outlets and avenues. They push us to become more creative and to seek our own paths of enjoyment around the franchise and the community. They provide us with the fuel to make our own conventions or shows, to make our own Star Wars-themed content, or to bring people together in new ways. And the goal through all of this is to connect, to find common bonds, moments to celebrate, and ways to make this year even more memorable than the previous one. So let's look ahead to 2024 together. Thank you for joining me for the adventure so far, and there's so much more to come as we begin Season 6 on Star Wars Prototypes and Production.